Friends, the movies we love might have something important to teach us. We're coming today to the final week in this worship series where we have been exploring films through the lens of Scripture and faith. And so we have talked about and watched Moana, Spider-Man, Into the Spider-Verse, and this week, as our, our closer film, the one that we'll be using to explore that passage from 1 John chapter 4, well, we're headed to the summertime of our memory, and we are visiting a classic. It is The Sandlot. And you'll find it's more than just a feel-good story of baseball and friendship, though it certainly is that. But we might have something to learn about love and God's love in it also. And remember, you don't have to have watched the movie, have ever heard of it, or seen it before to get something from this sermon. I promise you we're going to be talking about it a little bit. The scriptural truths there are there for us all. Let us begin with a word of prayer. Almighty God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable unto you, our rock and our redeemer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. So the Sandlot is sometimes described as a baseball movie, but I am here to tell you that it is not really about baseball. There's baseball in it, but it is not a baseball movie. You know the baseball movies, the ones that are about the team that needs to win the big game, and the big game is usually the climax, and perhaps they're not very good at baseball, but they get good, and then they win the game, and it's that whole sports film thing. The Sandlot isn't like that at all. There is one game, and we hardly see it, and it's kind of a blowout, and it happens in the middle, and it doesn't really matter in the course of the game. It is really more than about being, more than being about baseball. It's about the summer. It's just a summer movie. The critic Roger Ebert actually once wrote that if you've ever been lucky enough to see a Christmas story, you will understand what I mean when I say The Sandlot is a summertime version of that same vision. Neither movie has any connection with the humdrum reality of the boring real world. Both tap into a vein of nostalgia and memory that makes reality seem puny by comparison. It is truly just a movie about nostalgia, about stepping back to a time before, a time of our childhood when the summer days stretched long and there was nothing much you had to do any day but get outside and feel the sun and play with your friends. Now, that may not have been completely true what happened in our childhoods, but what nostalgia does for us is smooth out all the rough edges, make it something wonderful to reflect on and think about. And so it is a movie that is set in the summer of 1962, but it's really set in any summer of anyone's childhood. The author of the movie, the one who wrote the screenplay, actually said that they found that wherever someone is from, whoever they are, most anyone can identify with this movie and the kids that were in it. And so it is that perfect summer, sort of seen through rose-tinted glasses, sort of dream world we create out of our memories. It is charming and delightful. And it is a little bit about baseball. The main character who narrates some of the movie describes how the the neighborhood kids played an endless game of baseball. He said, I found out they never kept score, they never chose sides, they never even really stopped playing the game. It just went on forever. Every day they picked up where they left off the day before. It was like an endless dream game. And the movie 
captures that sense of the endless dream game of baseball, the endless dream days of summer continuing on in all of the best ways that anyone could imagine. And yet, in a world as perfect as as anyone's memory could allow it to be, there was still a difficult dose of reality, and it came in the pickle that the main character found himself in. Let me set up this movie a little bit. This movie is about Scott Smalls. We have a picture of him here, also known as Scotty Smalls. He is a young man who has just moved to a new city and doesn't have a friend for a thousand miles. He's a bit of a dweeb or a dork or something, and he doesn't know how to play baseball at all. But he meets a group of neighborhood kids, we got a picture of them all here, who played baseball every day, all summer long. And eventually they welcome him, despite his terrible baseball skills, because they need a ninth player, and the leader of the crew, Benny, seemed to think he really might have something to offer them. And so he starts to learn, and he starts to make friends, and along the way we find out that they are playing in the sandlot next door to the beast. The beast was the dog in Mr. Merle's yard with a terrifying legend. Here is a picture of the beast. It ate children, friends. That's how the legends went as they were told to Scotty Smalls. Balls that went over the fence into the beast's territory, the beast's backyard, were never found again. No child should risk their life or limb by climbing into the backyard of the beast. And so Scotty Smalls learns this and doesn't do that, and all is well, and the summer unfolds with hijinks and adventures until one fateful day when a ball is lost over the fence, and Smalls has the bright idea that because they need a ball to keep the game going, that he can run home, and he can take his stepfather's prized ball from his trophy room for them to use in their baseball game. And so he does, and they use the ball for a moment when Smalls hits a home run, and he hits his stepfather's prized ball directly into the backyard of the beast. And that's when Smalls learns that the ball he just lost wasn't signed by some lady named Ruth, baby Ruth, like he thought. It was signed by the greatest baseball player of all time, the great Bambino, Babe Ruth. And here's a picture of that ball And that home run that sent it right over the fence into the territory of the beast. And so begins a number of highly unsuccessful attempts to retrieve the ball. And Small knows increasingly and increasingly so that he is dead meat. Whether he's going to be taken out by the dog or by his stepdad, his life was over. He has messed up big time and there would be a penalty to pay, a punishment to come. Nostalgic dream world or not, that's how the world works, right? When you mess up, when you do something wrong, the penalty, a punishment, something bad is coming. Today's scripture has a little something to say about that. The scripture comes from the book of 1 John, which is a letter written to a Christian community in the first century, authored by a disciple that we only know as John. He has a very different writing style than Paul, whose letters make up so much of the rest of the New Testament, enough that reading through 1 John hardly sounds or feels like a letter at all. It's more of a sermon. And its focus, particularly here in 1 John, is on reiterating some of the most important gospel themes. God is light, John says, and God is love. It's a reminder to the listener 
something they already know, and it's important sometimes to, to be returned to the core of what we know to be true. Now, John's, letter, John's community needed the letter's encouragement because it would seem they've recently gone through some sort of a crisis where a group of people from their community have broken off to form their own church. And this group held a different belief than John's churches, including that they denied that Jesus was the Messiah or the Son of God. And so the splintering of their once seamless community has left the churches wounded. And John's letter here is an attempt at some damage control. Dear friends, he writes to them, let's love one another. They are, in some sense, a church like any church we might find just down the street from us struggling to get along with one another. They fought about something, probably important, seemed important, and now nobody knows what to do. Some of the members have gotten mad and they've left and nobody knows if that's for a while or forever. And into those days that follow, John writes them with this letter, with this message that he writes over and over and over again, love one another, he says. In just the 15 verses that we've read today, John uses the word love 29 times. And maybe it's important to emphasize because love isn't usually our immediate response after a conflict like this. When division and differences of opinion happen, when misunderstandings abound and words are tossed around like weapons, well, everyone gets hurt and we form sides and we focus on who was right and who was wrong and our preferred reaction is to insist that everyone face the consequences of their actions. I mean, that's how the world works, right? When we mess up, we sin. There are penalties to be paid. But it's into that tension that the community is experiencing, that John speaks the story of God's love. God's love was revealed to us, he says, when he sent Jesus to be the Savior of the world. And it's not that we loved God, but that God loved us to send Jesus to deal with our sins, to redeem us, to save us from the penalty that we had brought on ourselves. And if God loved us this way, we ought to love others the same way. And in fact, our love for one another is a sign that we know God. And if we do not love one another, well, then it's a sign that we do not know God. And this is the central message of the gospel, one that John's community has heard untold times, something they knew and believed and trusted. It would have been second nature to them if it could ever be second nature to any of us. But loving one another is often more challenging than that. This love insists that we let go of our need to see people punished for their wrongdoing. There is no fear in love, John writes, but perfect love drives out fear because fear expects punishment. In the story of the gospel, as John tells it, as it is told throughout Scripture, we have earned for ourselves through our sin a punishment that we never receive because of God's perfect love for us. And as perfectly as God has loved us, so too shall we love one another. Now, of course, a release from punishment doesn't mean we can simply step back into the world that was before our sin. Repentance is not a punishment, and neither is the work that it takes to restore a relationship and rebuild trust. We can forgive, we can release one another from the crushing weight of punishment without minimizing the way sin has wounded and injured us and while still maintaining the boundaries needed for safe or health of all those involved. The Christian tradition 
has always known how important it is to follow forgiveness with the ongoing work of redemption as we all continually strive to restore what has been broken and to sin no more. That work stretches on before us still. But it is love that starts us on that path. It is love that guides us on that path, not a fear of punishment. As much as we might dislike the thought, it would seem that we are not a culture that forgives very easily, if at all. When someone stumbles or blunders, we suggest penalties and punishments as some sort of necessity. A pastor and author that I was reading this week suggested that the most poignant example of our inability to forgive is how ex-convicts are treated when they re-enter society even after they have paid their debt through incarceration. We prefer to punish while God prefers to forgive. We might suggest that punishment is needed to learn, but there may well be a more important lesson to be found in forgiveness. Perfect love, John says, drives out fear because fear expects punishment. With his stepdad's ball lost to the backyard of the beast, Scotty Smalls was afraid. He was afraid of the dog, he was afraid of the neighbor, but perhaps most of all, he was afraid of the punishment he knew he was in for when his stepfather found out exactly what he had done. But the fear started melting away when after the beast escaped his yard and chases the boys all around town, the kids all discover that that massive mastiff was a sweetheart who wanted only to give them great big slobbery dog kisses. And when Scotty and Benny, two of the group, knock on the neighbor's door to return the beast to his yard, and they tell the whole story about their lost ball to Mr. Myrtle, the neighbor, when he answers the door, well, Mr. Myrtle asks them, why didn't you just knock on the door? I'd have gotten it for you. And then he invites them inside, and something even more astounding happens. Mr. Myrtle is played in this movie by uh, James Earl Jones, just to give you a sense of it. His, his voice, the gravitas of his voice, adds something incredible to the, the whole of this scene. And we've got a, oh, it's already up there, perfect, a picture of him there. And so it is James Earl Jones playing Mr. Myrtle, and he looks to these two children standing in his living room, and he says to Scotty, you're in trouble, aren't you, son? And the two of them explain that, yes, Scotty took his stepdad's ball without asking, and it turned out to be not just any ball. It was signed by the one and only Babe Ruth. And at that, Mr. Myrtle turns the now destroyed ball over in his hands because the beast had gotten to it, torn it up beyond recognition, and he chuckled and he said, George signed this? And when they said yes, it was signed by Babe Ruth, George Herman Ruth, Mr. Myrtle saw it, smiled even wider as he said, I take it back. You're not in trouble. You're dead where you stand. But as he is confirming this imminent punishment that Scotty knew he was in for, the punishment that he was now living in fear of, Mr. Myrtle goes to his own trophy cabinet and he pulls out another baseball. And he says, I'll trade you. And we learn that the ball he has pulled out was signed by every one of the 1927 Yankees, including Babe Ruth. And Scotty hardly believes it, isn't sure that he should take it, but Mr. Myrtle insists. He says, I got a lot of good stuff. Besides, you need it more than I do. And it was unexpected 
as love so often is. It went against the very grain of this world when out of love, God first sacrificed to save creation from the punishment of their own making. And it was that same love there when an old man gave a baseball to a young boy that summer afternoon. Scotty took that ball home and he gave it to his stepfather who was not altogether delighted but understanding in the end. And I do not think the lack of punishment that Scotty received meant that he was ever going to again sneak a prize baseball out of his stepfather's collection. He didn't need the punishment to learn that. And instead, he learned something better. How to love like God loves. We might have thought we knew how the world worked. That even in our best possible imagining, through the most tinted rose-colored glasses we could put on, that we still had to fear the punishment that would surely follow our missteps and our mistakes. But God has shown us a better way. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear expects punishment, John writes. And then he says, we love because God first loved us. Thanks be to God. Amen. Friends, I invite you to stand.